Well, friends, we remind ourselves that the purpose of John's gospel is to show us that Jesus is the only Savior and that through believing in Jesus, we have eternal life. So let's open our Bibles to John's gospel. Our text for this morning is John chapter 18, verse 28 through chapter 19, verses 15. Again, that's John 18, verse 28 through chapter 19, verse 15. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, you should see a blue hardback Bible near you in one of the chairs, one of the chair, uh, underneath one of the chairs near you. Uh, and if you don't have one, we would encourage you to take that Bible. And, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can read easily at home. We'd actually encourage you to take that as our gift to you. There's no greater gift we could give you than God's Word. And you'll find our text in that blue Bible beginning on page 904. Again, if you're using the blue Bible, it's on page 904. And as you're getting there, you know, it's hard to watch someone struggle with a decision and then ultimately make the wrong call. And we're given a front row seat to that very thing this morning. We meet Pontius Pilate and we watch a sad and cowardly man on the horns of a decision that shouldn't actually be a decision at all, who ultimately denies any sense of virtue, dignity, and honor to appease a mob in order to retain political power. Last week, we saw the unjust sham trial before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, as no evidence, no genuine argument, no real justice was carried out or served with Jesus. Instead, an innocent man was condemned for no crime and sentenced to death, though completely innocent. Today, that song's on repeat. Jesus will endure yet another sham trial And the horrors of violence against him will mount up, leading to his unjust condemnation. So we move from a kangaroo court of the Jewish leaders to a kangaroo court of Rome. So let's read John 18, verse 28 through 19, 15. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? 
After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to him, to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he, may, he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, from then, from then on Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Courts are designed to preserve justice. I mean, the very reason that courts exist is to adjudicate real evidence, real facts, in order to arrive at a just conclusion between conflicting parties. So when I was just in high school, the murder trial of O.J. Simpson captured the minds, hearts, and televisions of much of America. I still remember my mom watching the daily reports from the case. 
The lawyers became household names and celebrities. Even their dress and their mannerisms and their catchphrases became punchlines for news broadcasters. And as evidence was presented in this case day by day, kind of the common water cooler conversation was to surmise whether O.J. was guilty or innocent. In fact, when the verdict was read, I was actually in my biology class at Middleburg High School. And I I remember the, the whole school actually that day had tuned the televisions in the classroom as the verdict would be read. It was that much of a deal in our world. And some were enthusiastic, enthusiastically glad when they heard the verdict, not guilty. Some were incredibly sad when they heard the verdict read, not guilty. It seemed that the eyes of the world was on this trial, or at least the eyes of our country. And this phenomenon has not stopped. The recent trials of Kyle Rittenhouse and the McMichaels, are still capturing the world's attention or many in our country's attention. And just as with OJ, some were happy with the verdicts from those trials and some were sad with the verdicts from those trials, same with Kyle Rittenhouse and the McMichaels. Some were happy by the trial's outcome there and some were saddened by the trial's outcomes. But why do we care? Like, why do we care? What is it about these trials, these courtrooms, or even the the many courtroom drama television shows, right, that draw in our attention? What's, What's happening there? Maybe it's the drama of the court, or maybe our convictions about the matters being tried, or our conclusions about what is actually at stake in these cases, or maybe even our basic assumptions about what is right or wrong. Whatever the wrong motives there are, I think we actually are captivated by these things because we're made in the image of God. See, our capacity to desire justice is rooted in our Creator. It's the stamp of His image on each of us. Yet, we are sinners. Even the best of us is not truly or perfectly just. You see, we are in God's image, but we are not God. He alone is just and righteous. We as sinners always have a sinful tint to even our best attempts at justice. And this text that we just read shows us the most heinous sham of a trial in human history. Because the one who is truly and perfectly just, the one who is righteous and perfect in every way, is condemned by an unjust court. And yet, this condemnation, this injustice, is the only hope that you and I have, or will ever have, to be freed from eternal condemnation that we deserve for our every sin. You see, John composed his gospel so that sinners like you and me would read these words and believe in Jesus. And even as we see the hardened unbelief of so many who encountered the Messiah, we are meant to see and learn from their sad and dreadful choice. The lesson for us is twofold. 
Don't be like the religious leaders in Pilate whose blindness to Jesus led them to deny him. And yet, what is equally true in John's gospel is that the unbelieving schemes of mankind cannot thwart the saving purposes of our sovereign God. Nothing in this text that we just read happened apart from the Father's will. All of this was purposed by God to accomplish the very eternal life that we receive by faith in Jesus. This text reminds us of of an overarching theological reality from Scripture that the evil schemes of man, far from disturbing or destroying God's plans, actually serve to accomplish His wonderful deeds. So this text shows us Jesus who is in control, submitting to His Father, as he submits to a ruthless and corrupt government. This text is one that warrants walking through together. So instead of the traditional outline, point by point, we're just going to walk through this text together this morning. And our text opens with a transition. The religious leaders, having concluded that their false charges are sufficient enough to condemn Jesus, they deliver him for execution. They transfer him to the Roman authorities in order for them to do the deed. Now, they take him to the governor's headquarters and they dump him there. Did you notice that in the beginning of the text? John tells us in verse 28, it was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Are you following that? Are you seeing what's happening here? The irony in John's gospel, we see it every, almost every week, it's so thick. They were condemning an innocent man, but they didn't want to actually be defiled by walking into the governor's court. They were condemning an innocent man, but they didn't want to accidentally defile themselves while doing it. This would be hilarious if it wasn't so sad. Or if it didn't hit so close to home for many of us. How many times are we scrupulous about avoiding certain behaviors while completely ignoring blatant sin? Like the overweight glutton who won't touch alcohol because that's the devil's juice. Or the drunkard who condemns the glutton for overindulgence. Or the one who avoids gambling but cheats on their taxes. Or the spouse who claims to be faithful while addicted to pornography. It's ridiculous. It's offensive. These Jewish leaders, these leaders are so blinded by their hatred that they have justified what they are doing even while trying to maintain their ritual cleanness to participate, listen, to participate in the very festival that the Lord gave them to point to the Messiah they were murdering. Friends, This is a a lesson for us to hear. Let's not fall victim to the exceeding deceitfulness of sin. Your sin is not your friend. It is a slave master. And only Jesus can give us freedom from its slavery. So the leaders take Jesus to the governor's headquarters, and we're introduced to a man named Pilate. I was laughing this week because... In our elders meeting, after our elders meeting, we were talking about the service, and I was like, man, Pilate, I hate that guy. And Gary was like, whew, he must be bad because you didn't even say that about Judas. So that's, that's true. Like, I, I, I have discovered a new level of hatred for, for Pilate right now. But we meet a, 
a man named Pilate who plays a small but incredibly significant role in the Gospels. However, there are times, I have to admit, that I have read the accounts of Jesus' interaction with Pilate and kind of felt sorry for him, which lasts about 15 seconds until you get to know the man. So let me paint a brief picture. It's important to kind of get this. Two ancient historians, Josephus and Philo, describe Pilate as one who was greedy, inflexible, cruel, and resorted to robbery and oppression. His first interaction with the Jewish people was to provoke them when he took over the Jerusalem territory. He hung a bunch of embossed pictures of the emperor throughout the city for emperor worship with the distinct purpose of offending every Jewish man and female, man, woman, child, with a violation of the first commandment, which actually nearly caused a riot when he initially got there. He also stole money from the temple treasury in order to construct an aqueduct. And when the Jews angrily angrily protested this, he actually hid soldiers among them, dressed as civilians, and he had them take out clubs and beat the protesters, some of them to death. Then we even read from the Gospel of Luke that Jesus is teaching and he receives this report in Luke chapter 13, verse 1. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So he had murdered people while they were in the process of worshiping. Pilate was an unscrupulous, violent horror of a man who does nothing in this text to remedy the situation. Even beginning with mocking the Jews who bring Jesus to him. Now, this initial exchange between the Jewish leaders and Pilate has led some to believe, I think rightly so, that this whole moment had been prearranged. It was early in the morning, the night before Judas had been able to bring Roman soldiers to apprehend Jesus, which is evidence that this wasn't some random act that they were delivering him over to Pilate. But Pilate, whether he's toying with the Jews or provoking them, he asks for their charge against Jesus, which they have nothing to say but this. Did you notice what they said in verse 30? If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Basically, they're saying, trust us, he's really bad. You don't need to know what he did. We're credible here, he's not. I mean, either they weren't expecting Pilate's demand for a charge or all of a sudden they didn't want to be guilty of bearing false witness. We don't know. Whatever the reason, they seem caught off guard by Pilate's request. And so he initially pushes them off, right? Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Basically, they're saying, trust us. And he's saying, I don't. Do it yourself. That they could not do. They demand that Pilate do the killing, and they claim that they weren't allowed to kill anyone, which actually is consistent with Roman authority in a conquered region. Capital punishment was reserved for the Roman authority in a conquered territory. But there's another layer here, right? If Jesus were executed under Jewish law for his crimes, he wouldn't have been crucified. He would have been stoned. And the Jewish leaders, it appears, want nothing to do with that. 
They want Jesus to be seen as publicly cursed by God. Listen to Deuteronomy. Verses 20, chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. The leaders wanted Jesus hung on a tree because they wanted to display the curse of God on him. And John tells us that this was not simply the whims of man, but in verse 32, he says, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. What is John talking about? What does he mean there? He's reminding us of what we've previously seen in the gospel. John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Then again, Jesus says in chapter 12, verses 31 through 33, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from this earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Though crucifixion was the sinister plot of man, church, can you see at the same time it was the saving plan of God? The cursed and condemned Jesus was bearing the curse that we should bear. And in doing so, was delivering us from the curse we deserve. As Paul wrote in in Galatians chapter 3 verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Friends, listen, this temporary gross injustice is going to be the demonstration of God's eternal perfect justice. So Pilate brings Jesus in at this point to interrogate him. He's going to get him away from these leaders, and he begins by asking him if he is the king of the Jews. That charge would be significant if Jesus claimed to be a king. Because Roman law would then allow an execution. They'd be able to execute him as a treasonous opposer of the empire. But Jesus' response to Pilate is a bit of a call out. Do you catch that? Verse 34, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? It's a bit of an exposure here of, of what's really happening. Jesus isn't bamboozled or caught off guard. He knows what's what's going on here. It seems that Pilate has been receiving intel. But if you notice, in Jesus' words, there's also an invitation. If Pilate had this question for himself, if he was actually genuinely wanting to listen, we could assume that Jesus would have explained the truth to him. But his question isn't from himself. It's, It's evident because he gets defensive, right? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? It seems that Pilate is beginning to to come to grips with this situation here. That he's actually being controlled by a mob. And they simply want him to execute this man because they say so. 
And at this point, Jesus doesn't deny his kingship, friends. That's not what he does. But he explains his kingdom in such a way that the charge of him being a political opponent to Rome is patently false. His kingdom, as he says, is no earthly kingdom. If so, as Jesus says, there would have been, his followers would be fighting on his behalf. He would never have been turned over. He is not denying his royalty. Rather, as Jesus so often does, he points to the greater spiritual reality of his kingship. Friends, in this situation, Pilate is a pretend ruler. When Jesus is, in fact, the ruler of the universe. Even the ruler of that Roman governor who's interrogating him. And Pilate tries to trap him. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king, verse 37. But Jesus will not be had by fools and responds with both clarity and, I believe, compassion. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. He does not deny Pilate's claim. And he offers, and then he, he, he offers himself to Pilate in the next statement. Did you see that in the text? For this purpose, verse 37, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Friends, do you see Jesus' words are an offer to Pilate to hear and to heed words of truth, to listen. Jesus invites him to listen to his voice and to hear the truth. As one scholar notes, it is not Jesus who is on trial here, but rather Pilate who is confronted with the light of the world and must decide whether he prefers darkness or light. Pilate, here with Jesus, a captive moment with him, has the golden opportunity to listen to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. But he scoffs at him with a dismissive question. His response to Jesus' offer is, what is truth? What is truth? Friends, that's not curiosity. He's not genuinely asking. That's denial. I wonder if you can see the kind compassion of Jesus here. This man in front of him, wicked to the core, who is in league with the Jewish leaders who are seeking to kill Jesus. This man who is a murderous political opportunist, even he, is offered the opportunity to follow Jesus if he would but listen and believe. Friends, can you see that Jesus came to save the worst of humanity? That he offers himself freely even to those who are seeking his death? I don't know what you've done. I don't know what wicked deeds lie in your past or your present I don't know what struggles you have right now, but hear me. Jesus offers even you new life. Jesus did not come to save those who are righteous because those people don't exist. He came to save the wicked like you and me. And this salvation that he offers is accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. Friends, if you're here and you have questions about how to be forgiven about how you can start following Jesus, please talk to me after the service or anyone you've seen up here this morning. 
I can assure you, we would love to talk more with you about how you can be a child of the truth who listens to the voice of Jesus. Pilate scoffed at Jesus, but you don't have to. You can receive him today, hear his voice, and respond. If you're hearing this story and you're following along with me and you're reading it as if you're Jesus in the story, that's a gross misunderstanding. We are first the angry mob and the corrupt governor. That is who each of us is by nature and by choice. And Jesus says to us, to even us, that we can hear the truth and become one of his people. Pilate's response is not faith. Pilate tries to wiggle out of the situation. I mean, in verse 38 through 40, we see him go back out to an assembled crowd and he tries to release Jesus and to appear a generous governor at the same time. He cites a tradition of releasing a prisoner. Maybe he's thinking at this point they'll choose Jesus because the crowd will, will see that it's empty, that he's not guilty, and he'll get off of the hook here, and he'll look magnanimous in the process. I'm such a good governor. I'm so generous. But it's clear from our text that the crowd that is gathered is one that has been influenced by the religious leaders which Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account actually make explicit that the religious leaders were, were telling the people what to do here. And they're finally, I mean, you, you can see it from, from the plotting we've seen since so early, John chapter 5, all the plotting, that they decided to put Jesus to death. They can see it happening. Their plans to kill him are coming together. You can almost taste their anticipation. And Pilate offers to release Jesus. And when he does it, he makes the first of three confessions that he cannot find any guilt with this man, Jesus. And yet the crowd demands a man named Barabbas. Verses 39 through 40, so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. The word the ESV translates robber means equally insurrectionist, which is consistent of what Luke says of him, citing a Barabbas in chapter 23, verse 19 of Luke. He says he was a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Also, Mark notes in chapter 15, verse 7, and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Now, insurrection is a word that's kind of moved into our cultural understanding or, or vernacular right now, but sometimes I'm not sure that we understand what it means. The word insurrection means an act or instance of revolting against civil authority or established government. It's far more inclusive than we often relegate insurrection to mean. But Barabbas had revolted against Rome and apparently even murdering people in the process. Also thieving and stealing. And he had been apprehended and jailed for his insurrection because he was acting against Caesar. Are you tracking with this here? This is again so ironic that the crowd asks for the release of Barabbas, the insurrectionist. 
They want to charge the innocent man with a form of insurrection and demand that the insurrectionist be called innocent and released. There's something of a gospel prelude in this exchange. The one guilty of the crime insurrection, Barabbas, is set free. And the one who's innocent of the crime of insurrection, Jesus, is condemned. And at this point, can you see every cowardly political move is backfiring on Pilate? All that he's trying to do is not working. His next idea is not only foolish, its foolishness is matched only by its brutality. In chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, we read, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Let me point out some important information here. First about flogging. To flog someone was to beat them severely with a whip. Now, there's a bit of biblical background and cultural background for us to consider here. There were three types of floggings Rome prescribed. The best way we can kind of correlate them to our world is one was for misdemeanors, non-capital crimes. There was a second level of beating that would roughly correspond to a felony that didn't reach the level of execution. And then there finally was the scourging that was reserved for those who were sentenced to death by crucifixion. Most biblical scholars agree that Jesus endured two of these floggings. First, the lowest form of beating, which John records here, which is why Jesus and Pilate are able to speak after this, and that Jesus is actually able to stand in front of the crowd beaten. Later, After Pilate sentences Jesus to crucifixion, Jesus endured the second flogging of the severest form, leaving him so brutally beaten that he could not carry his own cross very far. This helps us us understand why Luke references the scourging of Jesus after Pilate sentences him to execution, because he's going to die anyways. Let's beat him again. John and Luke are not contradicting one another here, friends. John assumes that his readers would know that Jesus would endure a scourging after he's sentenced. So he doesn't repeat the gory details. And I remember in seminary wondering why the scourging and crucifixion of Jesus are reported without much comment in the Gospels. And one professor reminded us that the Gospel writers, even under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, were recording the most horrific display of injustice and violence against one whom they loved. They loved him. Which of us, if we were forced to witness something, even a fraction of the torture and death of Jesus, would want to satisfy human bloodlust by describing the filthy details of the death of a friend? Much worse than Messiah. And John does give us more enraging details. The king of glory, who was crowned in heaven, has a crown of spike-like thorns twisted and shoved down his brow so that the blood runs freely over the face of God. 
The one who is robed in the light of eternal glory is robed with a robe of mockery, mock royalty, to mock the kingship that was rightfully his. The sin-stained, filthy hands of humanity dare to touch the spotless Lamb of God to mock and scorn him. And beloved church, see the love of Jesus in this. I implore you, see the love of Jesus. It was not powerlessness that led him to endure such treatment at the hands of such men. It was not his lack of authority or power that led him to endure such injustice from their courts. It's his love for you. It's his love for me. It's his love for us that led Jesus to endure such violence against himself when he deserved none of it. I mean, consider what the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I mean, I don't know about you, but the injustice of these moments in the gospel is enough to make our blood boil. The cowardice of Pilate is detestable because Jesus is beaten to appease a mob that's proven nothing about him. He beats an innocent man for political preservation. That's who this guy is. Lest we assume that political corruption is only something we deal with, remember the political systems of man have always been corrupt. All of them. Since Genesis 3, there's nothing new under the sun for us. And then Pilate, furthermore, twice condemns himself and twice confirms the innocence of Jesus. Three times in total, but two more times here when he repeats, I find no guilt in him. He condemns himself because this is a plain acknowledgement that what is happening is not justice, it's a lynching. Likewise, twice on the lips of this pagan ruler, we hear the echo of John the Baptist crying out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The only lambs who can take away sin are lambs without blemish and spot. And Pilate tells the crowd of Jesus' perfection right before he delivers him to be crucified. And there's a reminder in all of this injustice here, as we read it, that every ounce of it, every bit of what we're reading and those things that enrage us is according to the will of our sovereign, saving God. I mean, look at the coward seek to display his power over Jesus and listen to the lion of Judah silence him. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you won't speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all 
unless it had been given you from above. Friends, it bears repeating because John is showing us constantly that none of this is accidental. None of this is outside of the sovereign plan and control of God the Father. Jesus lays down his life. The Jewish leaders in the crowds think they are taking it. Pilate thinks he has power over this man. But here Jesus reminds us when he said, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. It bears repeating because John reemphasizes it over and over for us. Do you see what happens? What's happening in this text? Pilate has delegated authority. Jesus has supreme authority because he was sent by the Father to do exactly what he's doing. John tells us that the, the more he interacts with Jesus, the more Pilate is incre- has an increasing wear- awareness that he's getting more than he bargained for in this exchange. John even cites, did you notice that John cites that Pilate gets afraid? Why? If he has all the authority, what's he afraid of? Afraid of what? If you have all the power, all the chips, why is he afraid? Because deep down, Pilate is becoming aware that there are deeper realities at play. There is something about this beaten Jewish man before him that's disturbing to his core. The internal conflict is what many people in our world experience when they think about God or when they hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Maybe you're experiencing it right now. There is a convicting work of God on the human heart when we are confronted with God's truth. And we either push it down and turn away from God, or, beloved, we listen, we hear, and we heed the truth. That's what Pilate didn't do. But it is what we can do if we hear the voice of God call us through the Spirit working on our hearts. And I wonder, are you listening to God today? Are you listening to Him? Pilate, in a final act of public cowardice, sentences the Son of God to death for the sake of his political future. You see, the crowd isn't foolish. The Jewish leaders are not unprepared, and they know they have leverage over Pilate. If they stir the crowd to rise up, sure, maybe some of them will die at Roman hands, but they know that if they riot... Pilate will lose all that he has, he has amassed. So they lay their final card down. Pilate again declares Jesus' innocence and the crowd will listen no more instead shouting, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. In fact, they're saying, if you do this, Pilate, if you let him go, we're going to Caesar. And if Pilate won't do their bidding, they're not only going to indict Jesus, they're going to indict him. So at this point, this trial is no longer about Jesus for Pilate. It's about his own future. He chooses earthly gain over eternal gain. 
He chooses corruption over virtue. He sides with the religious leaders against Jesus as the chief priests chant their allegiance to Satan. The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Now, I'm not saying Caesar is Satan, but the priests of God take up opposition to God. They deny their true king who stands in front of them unjustly condemned before them and by them. And they declare their allegiance to the world. The seed of the serpent from Genesis 3.15 reveal themselves for who they truly are. In fact, the ones who are charging Jesus with blasphemy blaspheme themselves by saying that they have no king but Caesar. That's blasphemy for a Jewish person to utter. One commentator notes, by vehemently, by vehemently insisting they have no king but Caesar, they are not only rejecting Jesus' messianic claims, they are abandoning Israel's messianic hope as a matter of principle, rejecting any claimant. We have no king but Caesar. And finally, disowning the kingship of the Lord himself. The screams of crucify him echo in our minds and our hearts because of the injustice that the words betray. The arrogant bloodlust and blind hatred of God is revealed. The natural state of the human heart is shown clearly in the screaming chants of the leaders and the mob they assembled. And as for Jesus, there is no defense. No one with him not even his disciples, most of whom have fled. Jesus, the innocent one, guiltless before Pilate and before all who charged him, stands condemned by his own people, by the Gentile courts, yes, by all of humanity. What horrific injustice. What corruption. What denial of the truth, virtue. What a denial of righteousness. And yet, church, this was the will and the plan of the Father to which Jesus submitted because this was the plan for salvation. The plan all along was that he would save his people through his condemnation in our place. I need to wrap up. I want to offer some closing ways we can apply this text to our lives. First, recognize that Jesus is condemned by human courts for the crimes he didn't commit, but you and I have committed them. Just like the crowd. Each of us is guilty of blaspheming God, being devoted to our own sovereignty, maybe not with our lips, but certainly in our hearts. Each of us is an insurrectionist, building our own kingdom, caring little for the kingdom of God. Recognize this and repent of it. Seek the Lord's forgiveness. Some of you need to seek it for the first time. You need to come to this condemned king and seek his forgiveness that you might become one who listens to the voice of Jesus and becomes a person of the truth. Second, let the injustice that was done to Jesus be an encouragement to you when you see injustice in the world that you can trust the Lord to do what is right. 
the corruption and injustice committed against Jesus was not the final say on what was really happening. The Lord was going to actually satisfy the courts of heaven as the wrath of God was poured out against sin, against the only one in whom there was no sin. Christ, not guilty in himself, bears guilt, our guilt in our place, bearing our shame. Through this human injustice, the Lord justly condemns sin, placing the guilt on the innocent one. And then justly, righteously pardon sinners who plead the blood of Jesus in their place. Human justice does not have the final say. We can, when we see the injustice of the world, even against us individually as Christians or corporately as the church, we can rest in the confidence that the Lord is righteous and he is the judge and he has promised to do right. Injustice was not the final note of Jesus' life. Justification for sinners through his condemnation was the goal. We can trust the Lord. Let that truth embolden and give you confidence in the midst of an unjust world. Third, third, let's learn again from the crowd and Pilate how dangerous the fear of man can be. We can go through this text and see that fearing humans rather than God leads to twisted words, to violence, to twisted actions, even murder. So let's be kind to our fellow man. Let's fear God and act in truth towards him. This is the only path for actually acting justly in the world. Finally this. Christian, can you marvel at the weight of your sin and the wonder of your Savior this morning? Church, he deserved none of this, but we do. Jesus was innocent. We are guilty. And yet in our place condemned, he stood, sealed our pardon with his blood. Yes, you are a sinner. Yes, you are guilty. But by Jesus, you are justified and made right before God. For he bore our punishment in his body on the cross for us. He took what we deserved so that we could forever receive what we don't deserve. So great is the love of God for you in Jesus Christ today. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray.